welcome back to my podcast. Today we're going to jump right in because I have a lot to cover. Today we're going to be talking about content material and this is a lot of things that I want to make sure I remember for the future and also I just think it's important to know and this is all about the legal system and specifically the uh, asylum process that people can apply for when applying for asylum in the United States and how it works. So let's jump right in. So first, I'm going to start off by saying that, as I mentioned in the last episode, it is false that if you get asylum in Mexico, you will get asylum in the U.S. It doesn't always work like that. You can get asylum in Mexico, and then if something would happen, you feel unsafe there, you could get it in the U.S., but it is a rumor and also a rule that Trump passed to help confuse and make the situation even more complicated, saying that in order to apply for asylum in the U.S., you first have to do it in Mexico if you're crossing through from another country. So, in terms of asylum, people can apply for asylum if they are suffering from persecution. So this is the legal term used for when someone is afraid to return to their home country. It's persecution, and often, when immigration officers will ask people at the border, Do you, are you a victim of persecution? A lot of times they'll say no, because persecution historically and in a lot of context, contexts is used oh, for war or mass murders or things that are extreme. Whereas here it really just means, have you been a victim of violence? So in the next context, that we're, that's what we're using it as. And they use the word persecution just as an overall form of fear. So asylum. There's two different types of asylum. There is affirmative asylum seekers and then defensive asylum seekers. So the affirmative is people who are not in the removal process. So this could be someone who is already on a U.S. visa that is not expired and they are applying for asylum to have a different residency status and they're already in the United States. The defensive is people who are in removal proceedings from the United States. So this will be filled out with an immigration judge and will be reviewed by the executive office of immigration and it just is a little bit different of a process and it's this is also counts for people who have come in to the united states through the mexican border illegally are caught by an immigration officer and say i would like to apply for asylum this is honestly how a lot of people do it especially from el salvador honduras and guatemala their plan is to just go to the U.S., cross illegally, and be caught by Border Patrol and ask for asylum. So, a really important note about asylum seekers and really anyone entering the border is Title 42. So, Title 42 has been A law has been a regulation for a very long time, but it was unactive, and during COVID, Trump reactivated it. And pretty much what this is, is it deters all rights for asylum seekers due to COVID. And pretty much says, we have the right to deter anyone that could put the health and risk and risk 
could put people in the U.S. at risk. So in terms of COVID, Title 42 pretty much said we can legally not let anyone in the country, even those seeking asylum, because they could have COVID. So instead of testing people, instead of taking their temperature and fever and giving them the help that they need as they are fleeing extremely violent and dangerous situations, the Border Patrol simply says, nope, go back to Mexico. And so what's happening is people are waiting just on the other side of the border in crowded cities and crowded areas and just making COVID 10 times worse there. So Title 42 is detrimental. It is drastically, has drastically changed the asylum process. And I am just hoping it will soon be revoked. I mean, COVID is fading. A lot of people in the U.S. aren't even wearing masks anymore. So really... This shouldn't apply, but under Biden, it is still being used. So normally, if someone is afraid to go to their home country, they have a right to seek asylum. And officers are supposed to, by law, ask anyone that crosses the border, are you afraid to go home? And if they say yes, then they get an interview to assess the level of their fear. And then they are put in a detention center and then the whole process starts from there. So I will go into more detail about that. But officers often don't ask this question if they're afraid to go home. They just simply deport them. As of a few weeks ago, Title 49 changed a little to no longer apply to minors that are unaccompanied. So this means that unaccompanied minors, so children below the age of 18 without any family member with them, can cross into the U.S. and apply for asylum. And this is a good thing in one regard, but in another regard, it's causing a lot of families to just wait on the Mexican side and send their children along by themselves or just send their children alone all the way from Central America up through Mexico to the U.S. because they know that they will be allowed in, but the families won't. So it is putting a lot of children at risky situations. Trump also passed the MPP, which is the Migrant Protection Protocol, which (laughs) is not as good as it sounds. (laughs) I know, surprise, surprise. But pretty much this policy, which is still in place, Biden has not lifted it, marks migrants to wait on the Mexican side of the border. So that means that if they come in, they want to apply for asylum. Normally, they would be taken to a U.S. detention center, and this still happens sometimes. But under this law, it made it a lot, or this act, it made it a lot more common that they would have to wait on the Mexican side and be subjected to violence and danger. Migrants are some of the most at risk because they often don't have a community and they often have everything that they own on their person. So as I mentioned earlier, the another policy that Trump passed is the third country asylum rule. That is, if you pass through through another country, you must apply for asylum in that country first. And this has been removed, but a lot of people don't know that. And so, as I said, there's confusion and people are waiting in Tapachula to apply for asylum in Mexico when really they want to go to the U.S. And they're just elongating the process and ultimately making it harder for them to receive asylum in the U.S., There was also another act that has since been terminated called Safe Third Country Agreements, 
which is pretty much where the U.S. can send people back to their countries, Honduras, Guatemala, without really interviewing them or asking them anything. So those are a little bit of the policies that have been passed under Trump, and some have been removed, but Title 42, which is probably the most detrimental and damaging to these migrants seeking asylum, has not yet been removed. So how to get asylum? How have people gotten asylum historically? First is you cross illegally into the U.S. on foot, and then you get caught, and you just hope that your immigration officer that catches you that day is going to ask you if you are scared to go back to your country and therefore give you the possibility to say that you would like to seek asylum. There's also an organization called El Otro Lado, which helps people ask for parole into the United States. So parole is pretty much you're allowed to go into the country to start the asylum seeking process. And so that is another way to do it. So you wouldn't have to necessarily cross illegally at first, but you would go up to the border and say, I would like to apply for parole so that I can start applying for asylum. And then they would take you to a detention center from there. So pretty much you cross illegally, you get caught or you try to get parole. And either way, you're going to end up in a cell. They call these um, barreras or I, I said, oh, I can't say it. Pretty much they call them dog houses or ice houses. Sorry, I should have practiced my Spanish, but um, because they're like little prison cells and they're also freezing. And it's pretty much a room with metal benches and it's only, it's only meant to hold people for about an hour or so until they can get processed, get their fingerprints taken and things like that. But these systems are broken, these systems are slow, and people are in there for hours or sometimes even up to weeks. Legally, policy says they cannot be in there for more than 42 hours, but that does not really happen. And they're only given like one to two meals per day, and they're just all shoved in there, men, women, children, in the same little cell blocks. So then after you're processed at one of those facilities, you are sent to a detention center. And this is where you must pass your first interview and screening to determine that you have a reasonable fear to not return to your country. So then from there, some people stay in the detention centers to await their court process. But some people who are lucky enough will get sent to different centers, such as the Dili Provono Project, which is a center that works with detention centers to help get people the resources that they need. And so this, this program will then at this stage meet with the applicants for asylum and go through with them what the next interview process is going to look like and because it's pretty it's pretty intense and knowing what to say at this interaction is vital and misinformation is circulated on purpose such as people being told oh you're not experiencing persecution it's just domestic violence when really it is persecution technically under the law so this is where they have their reasonable fear interview to see if they really do have a fear to not go back to their country. And this is with an interpreter with possible often on the phone, sometimes in person, and talking and telling all of their traumatic history to this officer and pretty much pleading with them to give them asylum. It's about one to two hours and by law only testimony is needed 
to be given asylum to move on to the next level, but that's not always the case. And sometimes someone's word is not taken as fact. There's a phrase that they say in this organization that's mis caso es ta en mis manos, which is pretty much your case is in your hands. It's up to you. You have to do this and convince the officer. And the the criteria that the officers are looking for is that there is a 10% chance or greater of persecution if this person were returning to their home country. So at this point, after a few weeks after this, you will get a decision that will be yes or no, that you can appeal for asylum. This is not receiving asylum, this is appealing for asylum. And if you pass, then you get to prove your case to a judge. So something that is different about this process than the United States criminal justice system is that these asylum applicants are not given an attorney by the state. They do not have the right to an attorney. They often are just by themselves fighting their case. And the lucky ones are the ones that have an attorney to argue for them. So then after this, this is where they talk to a judge and they try to apply for asylum. And if they get it, then they are allowed to live outside of the detention center and often people go to family. Or there's also shelters set up by advocacy groups that help to get them settled and get them going in the U.S., Now, something that I do have to note is that when it comes to a work permit, one year after applying for asylum is when you can get your work permit. So a lot of people coming from Honduras and El Salvador are coming to flee violence and free dissolute situations and extreme poverty, and they're coming to work. But legally, even if after they go through all this process and after they cross the border, go through the first two interviews of asylum process, meet with a judge. They still have to wait a year until they can get a work permit. So at this point, they've probably been away from home for two years, two and a half, and and their whole point of going was to send money back to their families so that they can survive. And I actually, we got to talk to a man who's doing just that, and it was, I'll talk a little bit more about that in my next episode or maybe at the end of this one, but it's really hard situations. have made it this far and you're still listening thank you that means a lot hopefully i did not bore you or confuse you with all the information i just threw at you it's just it's just a lot it's a lot to take in there's a lot of different policies constantly being passed things are always changing and that's part of the reason why it's so hard and such an impossible system is because even as students here with someone explaining it to us we're still confused and the person still doesn't have all the all of the answers our teachers still did not have all the answers and our teacher for this class um we had two teachers uh, one of both of them live in mexico but one of them is a u.s attorney and has been working in this field for a very long time and our other professor, she also has been working in this field specifically in shelters, talking and working with migrants and helping them to plan and figure out how they're going to make it into the U.S. So speaking of that, I'm actually going to shift gears and I am going to talk about 
my experience in Puebla, specifically getting to talk with people from Honduras and El Salvador who are on their way to the United States. So Puebla is a state that's a little bit farther north than where I am in Oaxaca. We went to Puebla City and that's where we stayed in a hotel and we had talks from a lot of environmental activism there. There is a lot going on with a lot of Canadian companies, Japanese companies, and Chinese companies, as well as U.S. companies invading their land. So I can talk about that in another episode. I still believe we're going to be learning more about that, so I'm going to hold off. But what I will talk about is the one day, and really only a few hours, that we spent in Verge outside of the huge city of Puebla. Avergue is a type of, is the word for shelter or place where migrants can rest for a few days. And if you listen to my last episode, I talked a little bit about the Verge that we visited in Tapachula. And this one would have to be probably the exact opposite. So where the Verge in Tapachula was brand new and shiny and had lots of different resources, had a little school on campus, and was meant for long-term stay. Families or people would be admitted if they were asked to or invited to apply. They would be admitted to stay there, and it was more of a long-term facility, whereas this verge accepted everyone until capacity was filled, and people were only allowed to stay for one to two nights. So let me explain a little bit more. This verge is run by a church and it's they've taken the big entrance area of the church and kind of gated it off and built a little little building and this is where the verge is and it is right next to the train. And if you know about immigration, you, know, you might know what I'm talking about, but this is a train that migrants take from Central America up to the north and it is one of the main ways and one of the most dangerous ways but also fastest to get to the United States. So this train is called La Bestia or The Beast. I think it's La Bestia if I'm saying that right. And Pretty much, if you look up pictures, if you Google Abistia, you'll see pictures of a bunch of migrants sitting on top of these trains and taking them up north. Yeah, no, they don't sit inside the train. It's very much illegal. They just hop on the top of the train and it takes them up north. So this verge is located right below the tracks. So as, let me backtrack. So as we we get out of the van, we're all wearing our matching white t-shirts that say visitante and we, you know, with our little name tags and we enter through the first gate and as soon as we enter, immediately there's a really steep slope that's probably 10 feet tall with rocks and sand and dust everywhere, it's hot, the sun's blazing down, it's only 10am and it's like 90 degrees and there is probably 20 men 15 to 20 men laying and up against this this fence just sitting there and talking or some of them are sleeping or eating little snacks and you know we walk by and i'm 
the first student i'm right behind my one professor nancy and she's like hola buenos dias como están and i'm like what am i getting myself into what is what is going on so then we walk up to we walk in we follow the fence to our right until we get to a big white door and it looks like big white walls surrounding this one area and we ring the doorbell and then a little little slot slides open and we see two eyes peek out and he's like oh que esta haciendo and then he lets us in and i i pretty much hear him say to nancy like oh i i didn't know you guys were coming today well welcome come on in and so we shuffle all 14 of us and our two professors into this little locker room space so when we walk in to our right is a little window that looks into the office and he told us that that is where when a migrant first enters they write down their name they write down where they're coming from and they share a few things with the office just so we they could keep a database and keep a list of who has come through this shelter. And then in the main room that we're standing in is the locker room. And so there's gray lockers lining two of the walls and they're just, they're open. None of them are locked, but they're filled with people's backpacks, shoes, hats, and filled with things. There was also a motorcycle in the middle of this room and it was not that big. We were cramped in there. And this is where a lot of the migrants that were staying there at the time keep their things. So he explained to us that in this shelter, anyone and everyone is allowed in until they fill capacity. And not everyone wants to enter. A lot of the migrants that we passed on the outside didn't want to enter or were just waiting until it was a little more emptier to go in and secure a bed for that evening. But as we walked into the main space, we saw also a lot of men hanging out the space was really open it was all concrete and in the far end there was a laundry place so lots of clothes were hanging up and people were you know washing clothes and right below a huge huge dome which is what the church was and then in the main little area there's like a basketball court in the middle with one basketball hoop and then to the right is a pretty small building with two rooms and a kitchen so the kitchen is of course the kitchen and it was just that and then there was one bunk room which was filled to the brim with bunk beds there was one tiny little walking path to squeeze back to the bathroom and filled with bunk beds and that is where all of the men stayed and then there was an even smaller room also filled with bunk beds for the women and that was pretty much it then there was one little covered shaded area in this courtyard which was not that big and that was pretty much the verde so the reason why i'm saying mostly men were sitting around and why the men bunk room was bigger is because about 80 or 90 percent of the people that pass through that verde are men and that's because taking la vistia the train is really dangerous not only by the people you're going to encounter but also just physically it is not easy and so a lot of women who are migrating north will pay extra to take a bus or to take public transportation or to find other ways to get there which just take a little bit longer that is mostly along the east side of the country they tend to be a little bit safer even though Puebla where we were it's in the middle but closer to the east as well 
but that honestly surprised me i thought that there would be more women but it was it was mostly men and so that was interesting so as we were there i definitely felt a lot of eyes a lot of presence i mean here we were a mostly white group walking into this space filled with men that looked exhausted they were tired i mean in the middle of this very long journey and just sitting and hanging out and trying to endure and enjoy a little bit of rest and they're like who are these people walking in but later in class we did reflect on and we did talk about how sometimes uh, and my professor shared with us she's like sometimes a lot of you all coming in from these like you know very elite privileged institutions with words being taught to you such as like uh political correctness and like acknowledging your whiteness in spaces and things like that while as all of those are of course important and very much part of the whole system at play here she's like a lot of times in these situations people are not thinking about you as much as you think that they are she's like yeah a big group of white people walking into this space i mean maybe some people took notice but to be honest they were just enjoying their downtime and that was honestly really really interesting to hear i don't know another word to describe it because i think it is easy to get caught up in trying not to be problematic while i'm here you you know i'm not mexican i'm not hispanic i'm not from any of these countries where these people are coming from and sometimes it's hard to get caught up in i want to make sure i'm doing everything right that i'm not hurting anyone or offending anyone which is important but at the same time i think often when i do that i'm making it about myself instead of just taking these experiences for what they are and just simply like observe it. The fact that I was even able to be there was incredible. And I think a moment that I will remember for the rest of my life was the moment when La Bistia passed when we were at the Verge. So imagine this, we were actually all waiting in line for the bathroom, which we're just standing outside in the courtyard and we hear a rumbling and everyone's like, oh, this is it, this is it. And so everyone freezes even the the workers at the verge freeze and at least for the first few seconds first minute they watch the train go by so the train came from the right and was heading to the left and so heading north and we all watched and stood there were rounded train carts which i was standing next to one of the workers of the verge and she explained to me that you'll never see anyone on those because they're too hard to sit on top of but then it's accompanied by a few square train carts and this is where people pile onto. So on this particular train, it was probably around 12 o'clock at this time, so there weren't that many people on it since it's the hottest time of the day, but there were about three or four people that had climbed down from the top and were hanging onto the side waiting to jump off. and it was just insane to actually like see this see something that i've read about way before coming here and seeing people actually jump off and all of the men who were already in the verge were like shouting like come here come here like come join like rest rest and like trying to fan down that this is a place that they could come and after the train passed and i think a few people ended up getting off and waiting outside to see if a spot would open up in the verge we walked up to the actual train tracks again literally just up a 10 foot steep steep hill to the train tracks and we got to have a look 
and I noticed that on the concrete wall, you could pretty, from the vantage point, you could pretty much see into the vertigay and see everything, but you might not know what that is, especially if you're taking a train past it. But there was graffiti that had kind of faded that said vertigay on the side, and just trying to let people know that this is a place that they could come. And the thing that struck me most about the train, and this is a new development, I asked the woman who was showing us around and she said this, these had been put in place six years ago, but the thing that struck me the most was that about every six feet on either side of the train tracks were these huge concrete posts that probably came up to like my armpit area and height. And they're huge concrete posts that were put in place solely for the purpose of making it more difficult for people to use La Bistia to travel north. So they were literally put in place to cause physical harm to people who tried to dismount and to mount onto this train. So I didn't actually get to see anyone dismount or go onto the train because I just wasn't in the situation and a vantage point where I saw that happen, but I can't even imagine how that's possible when like right next to the train are these huge concrete posts and people hit them all the time right when we were leaving the train was going by and i was already outside of the, of the verge at this point but my one professor had stayed behind for a little to talk and she said that she saw a man like hit the concrete post and then he fell down part of the steep hill and they, she just saw a few other men pick him up and then he was limping. So like in real time, she saw someone get injured with these posts. So these posts are just a larger example of the main anti-immigration policy in both the US and Mexico, and that is deterrence. We'll hear this word a lot, but deterrence is the main, re main way to fight against migration. And really it's it's kind of a joke. The whole point of deterrence is just to say, oh, if we make it more dangerous, if we make it harder, then eventually people will stop coming. I personally do not see it that way. In the Verge, we had a chance to talk to some of these men, and one of them very passionately spoke about how this is not the American dream. At this point, so we were kind of sitting behind a lot of them, and they were talking to each other, and some of our some of my fellow students were asking them questions and at this point this man who was in front of all of us stood up turned around faced us and said i'm not going to the u.s for an american dream i'm going because i have no other choice i don't want to leave my country i do not want to go there but i have no choice and he he was explaining things like how i'm pretty i think he was from honduras or venezuela i cannot remember which because there was another man that was talking as well. But he was saying how there aren't even maxi pads to buy for the women in his family, that they're forced to use towels and to clean them and how miserable that is for them. How a few years ago, there wasn't even food to buy, how people would get a certain amount of time and a certain day that they could go buy food. And if you didn't show up by 5 a.m., all the food was gone. And how even now, yes, it's getting better, but there is no jobs to be had. There is no money circulating in the economy. And how he has no choice but to go up north and 
to try to do anything he can to support his family. And seeing the desperation in a grown man's voice was, it was a lot. And I will just say deterrence is a joke. It's kind of funny because when people have no choice, no matter how dangerous it is, no matter how hard it might be, people are still going to fight and they're still going to try to come. So that's what my big takeaway was from it. But I am very overall grateful for that experience in the Verge. It was definitely not what I expected. But, and I wish I was could have taken pictures, but of course we couldn't. We didn't bring our phones even into the space. But it's definitely something I will always remember and always take with me. And I also, we talked about this 11 class, like even though we felt like we were intruding in a really personal time, a really personal and vulnerable moment that these men are experiencing, that it's, it's almost necessary for us to understand and to know and to share this knowledge with others so that the whole discourse, the whole narrative around immigration can change, especially in the United States. So that's what I'm going to take with me. And sorry, this podcast is getting very long, but pretty much I also wanted to talk about another thing, but I guess I'll save that for later. Uh, I'll just say to Google it. Okay, so please feel free to Google. Oh, shoot. I'm blanking on the name. Scrolling through my notes right now. Oh, why am I blanking? Okay, well, anyway, I'll put it in the description, but there's other immigration policies and immigration notes that I wanted to talk about, such as how now crossing, well, I'll, I'll just explain it, but pretty much now crossing illegally the first time is a misdemeanor, and if you get cross, caught crossing illegally a second time it is a felony and how pretty much if you're caught crossing illegally you're never going to get a visa and how visas are pretty much impossible to get anyway we actually looked up on the government website if i for example had a brother who was a u.s citizen and i as a sibling wanted to apply and do it the right formal way Right now, cases like that are being processed from 1990, I think it was 1998 or 1999. So over 20 years from now, I guess I would finally get my citizenship. So that's that was just alarming too. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry if this was too long, too boring, or all over the place and confusing. But I hope you were able to learn a little bit of something and get some takeaway from this and future self this is definitely a time i want you to remember so hopefully i did a good enough job explaining to bring back some memories have a good one bye